Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Well, I had somebody tell me that was a deep subject for my shallow mind once. I think it was A.W., I don't remember. I'm kidding. All right, today, the, who do you live for? Who do you live for? You know, this week was an interesting week for me. And um, it felt like a long week. But as I come in here this morning and I praise the Lord, I just feel the peace of God that surpasses all understanding this morning. And it makes you wonder, who are we living for? Who do we really live for? Now, a greedy old man, we're going, by the way, into 2 Corinthians again. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And while you do that, I'll read you a little story. Well, not read, but tell you a little story. A greedy old man just dies alone one day and In his will, he divided his fortune between three of his best friends, his pastor, his doctor, and his lawyer. And this was his one last request. The old man's will states that he wants to take his fortune with him so that nobody else can have it. And his final request is that these three, the last men on earth he feels that he can trust, each bring their allotment of his fortune to his funeral. $10 million each and put that money in his coffin and bear witness as it's sealed and lowered into the ground. On the day of the funeral, unsurprisingly, the pastor, the doctor, and the lawyer are the only three in attendance. And as they gather around the coffin, the pastor speaks first. He says, gentlemen, I'm sorry. I could not fully honor our friend's dying wish. His money can do nothing for him in the afterlife. But here on earth, it can still do some good. So I confess that I've donated one million to several reputable charities I know of, and they are in need of funds badly. And I used another million to sponsor missionaries to spread the word of God across the earth. But look, he opened a bag of cash that he had with him. I still have the remaining eight million, and I trust this will be enough to satisfy our friend's request. And so he dumped the money into the coffin. And now the doctor came up and he spoke next and he said, Gentlemen, I too have partially betrayed the trust of our friend. I feel only a little guilty about it, but I can't condone burying all this money while some people are still alive and still suffering. So I gave two million dollars to the people of my hospital to help them update and replace all our old outdated equipment. And I donated two million more to Doctors Without Borders to help them save countless lives in the developing world. But I've brought the other six million, see? And with that, he opened his bag and he carried it and he dumped the cash into the coffin. Our greedy friend can still rest in peace and I can still live with myself. And the lawyer looked at both of them. And he was mortified. He was absolutely shocked. And he said, how dare you? Both of you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. It's not a question of what this money could or could not be used for. It's a question of legal and moral responsibility. 
Our poor friend wasn't benevolent or generous or even very nice. And that caused everyone in the, that he knew to abandon him. Everyone but us. We were the only three in the world that he trusted to honor his last request. And at this, he produced an envelope. And he said, That's why I will leave this check for the full $10 million with our dearly departed friend. He wrote him a check and put it in the coffin. Yeah. Thank you. I was going to say that, but, uh, you know, just kidding. <laughs> so I got another little, little joke for you. This is only a one-liner, so you're good. The neighbors were greedy, selfish, rude, and had come into money from their family's milk farm. You could say they were dairy heirs. You get that on the way home. We're back in the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, we're coming into chapter 5, verse 12. And it says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Lord, a lot going on in our church, a lot of attacks by the enemy. Um, on, I know of at least three or four. And God, uh, I know there's more. And so we lift them up and we ask God that you would draw them to your bosom. That you would give them the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that you would lead them back to us. That you would lead them to us in victory. And God, as we come to your word, we ask in Jesus' name that you would use me and speak truth that would change our lives this morning, that would make us new, that would renew our minds, and that would help us to serve you in all ways. And we'll thank you for it in advance, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
life principle today is stop living for you and the world and start living in Christ. Stop living for yourself and the world and start living in Christ. First of all, we need to learn to stop living for ourselves. And sometimes it kind of sneaks up on us. 2 Corinthians 5, 12 through 15 says, We are not commending ourselves to you again. Instead, we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you can answer those who take pride in appearance rather than in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You know, my favorite part of that is if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. I say that a lot to some people. They just go, I'm going out of my mind. I said, then you're living for God. They think I'm nuts but that's okay. In this section, Paul says he's not commending himself again. In other words, he's not talking about his credentials compared to the false teacher's credentials. Remember back in 1 Corinthians, Paul's already defended his apostleship. Back in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, verse 1, he says, I am not free. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you yourselves not my workmanship in the Lord? Even if I am not an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who scrutinize me. Have we no right to food and to drink? Have we no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers? and Cephas, or are Barnabas and I the only apostles who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of its milk? So instead of defending and commending himself, he says to look at his heart and to see if it does not line up with the heart of God. Don't look at the outside of a person, but the inside. Israel had a problem with that. They had their first king, Saul, who turned out to be a failure. But he was head and tails above everyone else. He was a good-looking young man. He was tall. He was built. He looked the part. But he failed in the eyes of God, whereas David was none of those things. But he succeeded because he was a man after God's own heart. Even in his failures... He still succeeded. Christianity today, by looking at the outside of of people, has become so watered down that people no longer look at the heart of other people. It's all about appearances. We don't have church services and worship the God anymore. We have productions. We have plays and a feel-good message that really has nothing to do with the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I believe that Everything we do in a church service should be smooth and nice, but that doesn't mean I'm going to spend millions of dollars on a remodel to do it. It doesn't mean I'm going to spend millions of dollars to get the perfect sound system or the perfect lighting and to get people up here dancing. That's not what church is about. It's about worshiping God. 
It's about leading people to the throne room of God. And that's what worship and singing is about. We also find that people who have a charismatic personality draw people. And you know the type. The guy with the big wide grin who seems to just talk to you. Like he's looking at just you, even though there's millions of people around. He sounds good, and all the while he's pouring out false doctrine and false teaching. And he's getting into your heart and in your eyes and in your mind. And most Christians, you know what? They're going to swallow that poison because the guy who said it looks so good and was so compelling. Matthew 7.15 warns us. It says, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. But their fruit you will, by their fruit you will recognize them. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then by their fruit you will recognize them. You know, as I was reading this and praying about it, I said, Lord, you have called me, and the Lord reminded me, He's called me to watch out for the flock. And so I want to take a moment to learn just one aspect of a modern-day false prophet from the following news report. And I've only taken a clip from it. Elijah? But the real turbulence for the Copeland's ministry may come from within the security gates of his Eagle Mountain Church and ministry headquarters north of Fort Worth from former employees who tell News 8, Shout amen, somebody! The Kenneth and Gloria Copeland you see on TV Glory to God! are not the Kenneth and Gloria of real life. We were treated like galley slaves. In my eyes, there's deception. There's a fear mentality placed on people that work there. Just three former Copeland Ministry employees speaking out about the disappointment of discovering what really goes on inside. I started going to church there in 1994. Among them, Jeff Spradlin, who says he grew up admiring the Copelands and was excited to get a job working for them. It's within 90 days I started realizing this was a huge mistake. For nearly two years, Spradlin worked in the mail processing center where prayer request envelopes stuffed with cash would arrive every morning. He says a group of ministers, not the Copelands, would pray over the unopened envelopes. But Spradlin says he and other mail processors were the only ones who actually read the requests. And I, I was sitting there getting this paperwork all the day and going, Kenneth and Gloria don't see a word of this. How many of these prayer requests, to your knowledge, do Kenneth and Gloria Copeland see and or pray over? None that I know of. This former employee also processed prayer requests and sent return letters crafted to give the look of a personal response. In fact, the ministry recently bought a new high-tech printer, which according to the manufacturer, gives Copeland a finished document that looks 100% personalized. Amen! They think when they get that letter back that someone has actually prayed. Is that they misleading? Don't understand that that was actually just processed into a computer. Do you think that that is very misleading? misleading? I worked there for six months. From 
Nathan Boutwell says he, not Copeland, read the prison ministry prayer requests. There was no actual human contact with that letter besides my eyes, but that's okay. He gets 10,000 letters a week. But admit that. Don't imply that you read these personally when you don't. Hallelujah. The former employees we spoke to also say their spirits sank after learning Kenneth and Gloria have little, if any, contact with their faithful followers. That's the one time I saw the man was at the Christmas party. I uh, was in an elevator with Gloria once. And they had little, if any, contact with their 500 employees. And it was an unwritten law that if Kenneth or Gloria walked to the office, you don't see them, you don't speak to them. Former employees we talked to say when the Copelands are not on the road, they spend their days inside of their 18,000-square-foot parsonage on the shores of Eagle Mountain Lake, surrounded by hundreds of acres of range and ranch land, not far from their tennis courts and boathouse. The only access we could get to Copeland was to slip past his backstage security at a recent prayer rally at a public park in Granbury. Ms. Copeland, Brett Ship with Channel 8 News. Can we talk to you? Sure. Great. But his tenor changed once we asked the question, does he personally read and pray over his partner's prayer requests? Do you personally pray over your prayer requests that you get? Do you personally pray over those? Do you ever see them? Yes. You do? When do you see them, sir? When do you see your prayer requests? Well, that is between me and my partners. Copeland later told us his ministry is so large that he has to have a prayer team help him read the requests. Do you ever see those prayer requests? Do you ever see them? Do you ever touch them? Do you ever read them? Yes, I do. Again, according to Spradlin, how much of this mail and correspondence they see and or pray over? Zero percent. Zero. Zero. And then on your weekends, you're out preaching all over the world, you need a jet. Copeland says he has little contact with his staff because he and Gloria are private people who are on the road preaching much of the time. And as for our questions of him... You don't want to talk about the productive side of the ministry. You just want to run me down. You want to, you want to tear down everything you can. And I don't, know, I don't understand that. But Spradlin says what he and the others want Copeland to understand is that it's not about tearing a ministry down, but for the first time, exposing the truth. This is about coming to terms with it, understanding what, what I went through, and that this isn't God. All right, we're going to stop there. Name it, claim it teaching is false teaching. It's straight from the pit of hell. What we saw there is somebody that, that okay, if you don't pray over the prayer requests, fine. Don't pray over the prayer requests. But tell people you don't. Don't lie to people. They teach that you and I are little gods and that we have the power to create and destroy whatever we want. And that's wrong teaching. I got news for you. You and I are not little gods. I am not a little god. You are created beings made in the image of God. That doesn't make us divine in any way, shape, or form. God is more concerned for your character than your appearance. God is more concerned with your heart than with your credentials. You want to know how to live in victory? James 4, 7 tells us, Therefore submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The key to this is not on resistance, but on submission. 
The key to this is not on resistance, but on submission. Submitting to God is the only way that you can resist and live in spiritual victory. It is not based on some false teaching, spiritual formula that says you got to do certain things or God can't bless you. It is not about submitting to God all that you are on the altar of sacrifice and screaming on the inside of you, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it's about, submitting everything that you have to Jesus Christ and being opened and honest with those around you. It is Christ's love that compels us to spread the gospel. It is his making us new in our hearts and minds and spirit that allows us to truly walk in his love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You do not, as a true Christian, get to live for yourself. You live for Jesus Christ to fulfill the Great Commission. And if you aren't doing it, then you're in sin. And you need to throw yourself on his mercy and grace for forgiveness. Stop looking at the outside of a person, point number two. Stop looking at the outside of a person. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 19 says, So from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Although we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. When we look at the outside of a person, we don't get a picture of who they really are. For example, a person may be beautiful by the world standards, Yet inwardly, they're as evil as evil can be. Likewise, just because a person is rich by the world's standards does not mean that we should give them a pedestal to be put upon in our hearts or in our congregations. James 2.1 says, My brothers, as you hold out your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you lavish attention on the man in fine clothes and say, here is a seat of honor, but you say to the poor man, you must stand or sit at my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the noble name by which you have been called? If you really fulfill the law, stated in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That was James chapter 2. Back to our main text, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 
not counting men's trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The old ways of doing business, of socializing uh, for the Christian, should be rendered dead in our lives. And by those old ways, I mean the ways of the world. Why? Because if you and your fellow Christians are truly Christians, then you are new creation, and the old ways should be dead. You must live this life by the new covenant, the new covenant that we find in his blood. If God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ, because you can't be good enough on your own to reconcile yourself to God, then how is it we can show deference to others? That shouldn't be. We should be spending our lives to make sure that we don't do that, that we are open, we're honest, and we look to bless others. You know, I used to watch uh, Unsolved Mysteries, and some of you remember that in the early 90s. There's a story about a man that came to a couple, and they were working outside, and he was in kind of ratty clothes, and he came up and he said, hey, can I bother y'all for some water? Well, the wife didn't stop there as the, as the husband was talking and, and, and being with him. She went and made him lunch because it was that time of day. She went and, and got him the water. She went and gave him, I think it was a little over 100 or a little under $100 because that's all she had. And they sent him on his way. That Christmas, they found an envelope for over $1,000 in their mailbox. And every year they have found an envelope in their mailbox for over $1,000. That was just amazing. They didn't do it with that in mind. But they reached out to somebody that nobody else was reaching out to. I'm not going to say that happens to everybody, but that's the type of acts that God expects from us. Doing what you can do for those who are in true need as the Holy Spirit leads you. Number three, start living in God's reconciliation, which was purchased in Jesus' blood. Start living in God's reconciliation, which was purchased in Jesus' blood. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What is the motto of this world? Have you ever thought about it? What is the motto of the world? If we could boil it down, what is the motto? Get what you can get, and he who dies with the most toys wins. Get what you can get, and he who dies with the most toys wins. It's called consumerism. For the Christian, this should be the farthest thing from our lives and from our minds. Our lives are about giving, not taking. Our lives are about loving others, not ourselves. Why? Because we are God's representatives on earth, to those who are perishing. Because our sins have been forgiven through Christ, so we should act opposite of the world. 
because Christ has commanded us to live in his way. And his way is Matthew 10, 37. It says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because... He is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of the little ones, because he is my disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. You and I, we were once enemies of Christ, enemies of God, yet Christ died for us. If God could show us his love in this way to send his son to die for us, how dare we think only of ourselves? How dare we not act like Christians? We're not to act like the world. How does the world act? Selfishly. What is the world? It's dead and it's going to hell. Romans 5, 6 says, for at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You and I were powerless, yet Christ died for us. You and I were ungodly, enemies of God, yet Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from wrath through him? For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And because of his life, we don't have to live as the world lives. Oh, we got to deal with sin and temptation and all those things, and we're not going to always agree. But God died for us. We don't have to be enemies of God. If you remember nothing, remember this. Please, let us stop living for ourselves and the world. And let's start living in Christ. Let's stop living for ourselves and the world and start living in Christ. Some of y'all are saying, but preacher, that, that's, you can't do that all the time. That's hard. If it were easy, he wouldn't have called us to it because everybody could do it. That's what I tell my students when they're typing. Mr. Kramer, this is hard. Yes. But if it were easy, everybody would do it and you wouldn't have to learn it. Same thing in, in, in living the Christian life. If it were easy, everybody could do it. 
hey, guys, guess what? You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. You need the power of the Holy Spirit inside you. There are going to be times when you rise and you're going to walk in that victory and there will be times when you fall. And the scripture says, though a, though, a right, though, a, sorry, though a man falls seven times, he gets up seven times. A righteous man does. Now, I didn't quote that exact. That, we'll just call that the Joe Kramer version of the Bible and throw that out with the you know, bathwater there. Wow. Y'all will get that on the way home, I guess. God is good. It's, it's us who aren't. It's us who need to continually submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and ask ourselves, who are we living for? And what are we doing? Does it have any eternal value? Or is it just to please our flesh? That's the question. You know, I've asked myself that a lot this week. And I'll probably continue to ask myself that a lot. I know it comes up at least once a week in my mind. This week it's come up a lot. So as we close and the ladies come to sing, let me ask you, where are you in Christ? If you're listening by audio or podcast or whatever, are you sure that you're sure that when you die, you will wake up in heaven? If not, then you can be sure. You can ask Jesus into your heart and life. Jesus, come into my life. Be my master. Be my savior. Christian, have we really stopped to examine ourselves? I'd like to think I have, but I could do more. But have we really stopped to examine ourselves and said, Lord, show me where I'm missing it. Show me where I'm for me and not for you and not for your work. Lord, show me what to do. That's you today. Maybe this will be a good time to examine your life. You know, when we do communion, it talks about a man must examine himself so that he would not be judged. We should at least be doing that in this church once a month. At least. Because if we take the communion in an unworthy manner, it says that's why so many people are sick and die. I want to make sure we're doing that right, too. Don't know why I went down that rabbit trail, but we shot it and brought it back for dinner. As we stand and sing the invitation song, Miss Joe. We're down here for that, too. You want to join this church by letter, by statement, by baptism, you can come down, too. Go ahead.